This episode deals with some sensitive topics, so listener discretion is advised. I grew up in Houston, one of the most diverse cities in the United States, and I thought I was racially sensitive. My best friends in high school were first-generation guys from Mexico and Egypt. Everyone assumes because of my name and appearance that I speak Spanish, and I'm a part of a generation whose parents tried to raise us colorblind. But that was the 80s and 90s, and pop culture and television reinforced that narrative. The Cosbys were a wealthy American family, a doctor and a lawyer that lived in a brownstone. We were all the same except every once in a while, like that time on Family Matters, when Eddie Winslow got pulled over by a white cop and his dad confronted him. So what do you say? That you only harass black kids whose parents aren't cops? I didn't say that. You didn't have to say that. Then I got married, moved to my wife's hometown of Baltimore, and realized that things were not so simple. People would say things like, you don't want to live there. It's a mixed neighborhood. These were upper middle class people living in their suburban homes. I realized that pretending everyone is the same and that we aren't shaped by our experiences and history made me pretty blind to the race issues that our country faces. Because in Baltimore, the racial divisions are stark and unavoidable. Baltimore is burning after a day of looting, rioters clashing violently with police. Tonight, a community center in flames lights up the city. This really hit home in the summer of 2020. The violence that has hijacked protests across the U.S. George Floyd's death. Tonight, a nation on edge for the first time. The situation here in Santa Monica, California is very fluid. You can see police here now firing tear gas into the crowd. We stabbed him, dude, the guy right there! Get him! Get him! The events of that summer were awful. And the harsh reality is things haven't gotten much better. I can't help but look at all these things through the lens of faith, because what defines me more than anything else is that I'm Catholic. I have been my whole life and even work for the church. So I'm about as inside as you get without being ordained. I always try to apply what the church teaches to every part of my life. That's partly why he has five kids. (laughs) This is Jay Lampart. We met in 2016 at a church picnic. He's what we would call a revert to Catholicism. A revert is simply someone who walks away from their faith for an extended period of time, and then usually through a set of very personal circumstances and events, comes back. I like to say that when I left, I walked off into the sunset with my back to the church and my middle finger in the air. It's complicated, so to make a long story short, 20 years later, I came back, crawling on my hands and knees. It's the typical prodigal son story, but definitely one for another time. And so, that's how this project started. Two Catholic white guys being convicted in 2020 that we don't know enough about the racial issues in our country and wanting to do better, without annoying every African American in our lives with questions. I'm Edward Herrera, and this is The Ark and the Dove, a podcast about faith, resilience, and hope in the black Catholic community. So what's the best way to define the Black Catholic Church? Well, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't use that term, the Black Catholic Church, uh, without context, ever. I would never do that. This is Lewis. 
So my name is Louis Damani Jones. I'm a licensed social worker. Um, worked in a ton of different roles from social policy analysis to civic engagement in higher education. And currently I'm a behavioral health therapist and a research assistant based in the St. Louis area. I met Lewis in the process of this project and he's been willing to endure answering what I can only imagine are some really stupid questions, including the first time I asked him about the black Catholic church. Yeah, it's like how people say the, the quote unquote black church. It's a little bit different than when you're talking about the black Catholic church because when you talk about the black church, you're often speaking about kind of the ecclesial social institution that started to grow during slavery prior to any hard and fast denominational boundaries kind of being imposed or being experienced there and then took an, these different institutional forms and certain denominational forms over time. And so So you mean that when someone says uh, black church, black Catholics don't really fit into that? Or do you mean that there's a black Catholic church in the same way that there's a black church that is Christian? Well, I would say, you know, a majority of quote unquote black Catholics don't worship in that context, right? In that black sociological context with its roots in slavery or kind of the early slave Christian experience. Um, they are often in multicultural parishes, which is essentially like what you could call a quote unquote white normative parish. Um, where the majority of people are not of African descent mostly. So, for example, I know a lot of people who are identified as Black Catholics who exclusively attend the traditional Latin Mass. Does that make them any less, quote-unquote, Black Catholic? No, because really, again, the Black Catholic Church or Black Church and being a Black Catholic are not the same kind of thing. One is this maybe more sociological, participatory reality, how you worship, the hymns you sing, uh, if you will. And then one is kind of like an ethnic type of experience. Like you, you would say somebody is Irish and Catholic. You could see them as like black and Catholic, right? Like in that same way. And I think that's how I think about, you know, this, the black Catholic person. So that's how I would draw this distinction between those two. So black Catholics don't necessarily experience the quote unquote black church in the way that maybe per perhaps other black Christians may because of this distinction. Lewis is kind of serving as a guide for us for the black Catholic church. But of course, he's just one person. And he's made that pretty clear. I don't speak for the black Catholic community. The fact that like, I don't and I don't actually speak for, for the whole black Catholic community. And I want to reiterate, I want to make it abundantly clear. I do not speak for the whole black Catholic community. He does have some pretty unique experiences that have shaped his worldview and perspective in a manner that's been pretty enlightening to me. Yeah, so I was born in 1994 in an area of Manhattan in New York City uh, called Harlem. And a few years before that, my mom, dad, and godparents founded a house for individuals living with HIV, many formerly incarcerated, many experiencing homelessness, which has always been an important part of my story and important for me because my godfather did die from the virus, HIV. Uh, and my father has been living with the virus uh, since I was born, since actually before I was born. But that spirit of activism has always been a part of my life. Uh, you know, this is why partially why after the death of Michael Brown, I found myself helping to found a St. Louis based activist house, you know, joining and participating with a number of others while I was being formed by an organization called the Organization for Black Struggle, which was a group that had been advocating, fighting for racial, social, economic justice 
in the St. Louis area long before Black Lives Matter was a household name as it is today. Lewis is also a revert to the Catholic faith, but he took a little different path than Jay. Yeah, so I was I was baptized and confirmed Catholic. Um, went to a Catholic grade school, K through fifth, but stopped going to mass uh, as soon as my mom would, would let me essentially. And faith just really didn't have much bearing in my life in terms of believing in necessarily Christianity specifically or anything like that. So when I was in this activist house in St. Louis, I ended up having just a lot of conversations with this guy from Union Theological Seminary. He ran a theology blog. And I would always connected also with Martin Luther King Jr. and kind of his his vision of racial justice and, and kind of a more just society. So I ended up finding myself thinking about a lot of these things, like a lot of these themes and these intersections. And somehow over time and through a process, ended up in a place called the Coptic Orthodox Church. And when I got there to the church, I think that the priests, uh, this was at the Coptic Orthodox Church, just like assumed I was Ethiopian or something. And like I belonged there and you would only understand why that would be relevant if you knew like about the Coptic Orthodox Church and the Egyptians relationship with Ethiopians and Eritreans. But I, I didn't, I didn't belong there. And as time went on and I continued to learn and read and meet others and specifically reading about the early church and the church councils and the progression of the Christian church through history, I ended up being truly convinced and believing and, and deciding to return to my roots, which was the Catholic faith. If you can't already tell, Lewis is the sort of guy who has the most incredible experiences. And from those experiences is pretty sympathetic to just about any position even those with which he disagrees. And he tends to recommend about three books every time we talk. That's why when Jay and I met Lewis, we really wanted him to be a part of this project. But we also knew that we needed to understand some of the historical roots of the Black Catholic Church. So in this episode, we will focus on the history of the Black Catholic Church. But since Lewis told us not to use the phrase the Black Catholic Church without context, I'll define what we mean when we use the phrase throughout the podcast. So when we say the Black Catholic Church, we are talking about the practice of the Catholic faith by African Americans whose worship and theology is shaped by slavery in the U.S. To get at this history, we wanted to speak with some real experts on the subject. And it just so happened that one worked right across the hall from me at the Archdiocese. Could you just uh, state your name? Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Camille Brown. I am speaking in my capacity as an author of Black Catholic history, as professor of Black Catholic history for many years, as researcher of Black Catholic history of missionary in Africa for 18 years, as traveler, explorer of the continent, as continual learner of Black Catholic history. I asked her to tell me about the Black Catholic Church. Okay, whenever you talk about the Black Catholic Church, I think your, your starting off point must begin with the Acts of the Apostles, because that's the point where we can identify in the New Testament, if you go back to Acts 8, with Philip and the Ethiopian, uh, you have there the marking off point where the church comes back to Africa. She's talking about this great scene from the Acts of the Apostles, where an Ethiopian eunuch is reading from scriptures aloud while riding in a carriage and St. Philip catches up to him and asks him if he understands what he's reading. He doesn't. So St. Philip tells him about Jesus, and the Ethiopian asks to be baptized right away. They pull over, Philip baptizes him, and then, in a nice little twist, Philip disappears. 
The Ethiopian continues on his journey. So he returned home rejoicing. So what we learn from that scripture text is that he took Christianity back to Ethiopia, which is in East Africa. So that's our evidence that Christianity in first century went back to Africa. So unless something happened to him and they were all wiped out, we have a bunch of Catholic Christians going back to Ethiopia, carrying the faith. We have historical evidence as in the second century in East Africa, again, with St. Spiritus and Companions. Spiritus were marked as the first African martyrs because they were carrying around the scripture texts of this man named Paul, the writings of Paul, and they were told to stop. And they couldn't imagine why it was such a crime, why they would be arrested for reading somebody's writings and sharing them. And finally, they were martyred. She then talked about Emperor Justinian, the Byzantine emperor from the 6th century, and his wife Theodora. You know, if we wanted to have even more modern evidence, if we move into, say, the 15th century, 14th, 15th century, King Alphonsus the Good of the Congo, we always talk about him. All of his people were Catholic. Why? Because he wanted to make an impression on the Portuguese and all the other Europeans that were coming through. We shouldn't be surprised to associate with Christianity with Africa. This is Mike Aquilina. He is kind of a big deal in the Catholic space. In a recent episode of the Cordial Catholic podcast, he was talking about Catholicism in Africa. I mean, it's been there from the very earliest years of the church in Libya, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Sudan, Egypt. You know, all, these places all had um, had the faith uh, within the first four centuries of of Christianity, and and not only did they have it, but they were um, they were really engines of uh, of intellectual activity, liturgical activity, creative activity that informed the faith as it developed in other places, and especially on, on the European continent. So so it's likely that Egypt uh, experienced some evangelization very early, and again, as I said, I think Ethiopia probably did too because of the Ethiopian eunuch. But there are also alternative readings of the religious makeup of African countries. Well, Islam was the, um, the principal religion in parts of Africa. But you had uh, Christianity that the Africans embraced. They found that there was more things that they could accept and identify with through Catholicism than Protestantism. That was Dr. Joanne Martin the co-founder and curator of the Great Blacks and Wax Museum here in Baltimore. She's been very helpful for a more secular reading of the history of race and slavery in Baltimore and beyond. But what I was trying to get at with my questions for Dr. Brown and Dr. Martin was the origins of the Black Catholic Church in the United States. I wondered whether we could know the religious beliefs of the people who were forcibly taken to the Americas. And it seems the short answer is, we don't but we can make educated guesses. Again, Dr. Camille Brown. So your question about people who were coming over here who were enslaved, there were so many people <laughs> enslaved. Um, they were, could have been Catholic, could have been Christian. 
So quite interesting, uh, Father Cyprian Davis in his history of black Catholics in the United States really is a Bible. So we've used Father Davis's book a lot in our research for this podcast. Davis was a Benedictine monk in Indiana and published what is considered by many the definitive history of black Catholics in the United States. He did such a great job in unearthing the sacramental registries of black Catholic communities, particularly in the South. So you have the names and you have when people were baptized. And then, you know, some years later, you see the actual church records of when these people received other sacraments. I'm talking about Catholics, right? So we know the baptisms, we know the communion records, we know the marriage records. So-and-so were legally made husband and wife in the Catholic Church, you know, as we understand husband and wives getting married. You see the, the burial records, so we know that they're in sacramental ground, just as we do today. So I like the fact that there's uh, Cyprian Davis produce all of these church records. All of our churches keep records today. You can imagine 100 years from now, they want to know, well, what was going on in Baltimore 100 years ago? Let's go to St. Ambrose and see their church records. Similar to, you know, 100 years ago, we can go to Florida and Louisiana and pull those church records. So, um, yes, people were receiving sacraments as we know them. For Catholics, the sacraments are huge. The sacraments are really what differentiates Catholics from other Christian denominations. We believe that they are physical ways that we grow closer to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I really wanted to understand how much of the sacramental participation was willing versus coerced. This is a question raised a lot within indigenous communities, and I wanted to understand more in the context of enslaved people in the United States. But again, that seems to be something that we just can't fully know. There's one area in particular that Dr. Brown pointed us to in order to consider this question, St. Augustine, Florida. St. Augustine, Florida was an area of freedom for slaves. So you come to St. Augustine or St. Augustine, however you want to say it, um, and you're a slave. If you became a Catholic, there was security down there. So you might be saying, well, did this person freely become a Catholic? Did they in earnest become a Catholic? What we know is that it was a stronghold of Catholicism and black Catholicism. That said, I can't ignore my conversation with Joanne Martin of the Great Blacks and Wax Museum. Because Christianity was used as a weapon, they loved to quote Paul's um, slaves obey your master and, and, and the Bible then you could always find some kind of biblical passage that would justify slavery. But then the the abolitionists did the same thing. They always found something that would would say slavery is wrong and and don't enslave human beings. But the the Bible as as a weapon. And for the slaveholders, they understood how they could use the Bible and religion, and that, and that was a part of their modus operandi, to bring these people that you were going to Christianize and to tell yourself that you were doing God's work. Camille gave some more context to these concerns about faith practice. What we do know is that the Catholic faith was passed on generation to generation to generation. And that's our sign that these people did embrace the faith, that they passed it on to their children. I think that this is a really significant indicator. 
The fact that these people want to share the Catholic faith with their children suggests that something real or internal was taking place. I think that these enslaved people weren't just doing the externals or trying to show that they were compliant somehow with what the white people wanted them to do. They were passing on something real to their children. As I've mentioned before, I'm a parent and I want what's best for my kids. I want them to have a better life than I have in every meaning of that statement. If I didn't really believe, why would I bother baptizing my children and going to Mass every week? I guess I wouldn't have a definitive answer. I don't know what was in those people's hearts, but what I do know is that the faith was passed on. And even today, St. Augustine, there's a lot of black Catholics down there. All right, at some point, somebody was passing on the faith is my point. So what, did it begin as coercion? We don't know. Did it begin as you have freedom here? Maybe people came to St. Augustine in areas like that and said, this is the Catholic faith, and they love it, and they stayed, and they passed it on to their, their children and children and children. The reason I struggle with this question is because freedom is essential for faith practice. The heart of Christianity is that a loving God comes to meet us in a broken world. I believe that our God loves us and wants a relationship with us. Christianity is fundamentally about love, and the brutality of slavery is just so antithetical to that. First, we need to understand there's two concepts of slavery. There's a European concept of slavery, which means just because you're a slave today doesn't mean you're going to be a slave forever. Doesn't mean that your heirs and assigns will be slaves. Um, you could have been a slave in Europe because of debt or because years ago somebody conquered your people, but you had an opportunity to buy yourself out or maybe even through assimilation or through marriage. There were lots of ways for you to get out of slavery. So that was the European mindset, and the church bought into that too, there. Now, fast forward to the American church. We're here, and the slavery in the Americas began because of the need for cheap and abundant labor that started with indigenous people did not work with the indigenous labor. So at some point, and I don't want to get into who was the person that started this, but, oh, the Africans work really hard. And if we, you know, the idea became to enslave the African people. So we're coming out of that European mindset and bringing them over to the Americas to work. Slavery here meant you were a slave forever, all right? You and any of your heirs were not even considered people. You were property, okay? Again, Dr. Joanne Martin. So in, in the U.S. and in, in the Americas, chattel slavery meant that those people who built the slavery system, they figured out that um, a, you wanted the white male to have dominance over the male slave, over the female slave. You wanted the black man, you wanted to take away all of his power. Um, that You did not want him to see himself as your equal and rival. You take away that power. You have the power to rape his women. You have the power to sell him and his children 
to sell him away from uh, and not give him any kind of control. You put her and him together in the fields, you're doing the same work. So you're being equalized in a way that would not exist in the white patriarchal family. And it was awful, which is something that I have to remind myself when people dismiss slavery as something that happened a long time ago. Walking through the Great Blacks and Wax Museum is a painful but healthy reminder of that reality. The Great Blacks and Wax Museum in downtown Baltimore is hard to miss once you know it's there. The gold-colored brick facade of the renovated firehouse stands out amongst the vacant apartment buildings, the row homes, and the former businesses along North Avenue. I should know, I've passed it by for many years every time I go downtown, and I've never given it much thought. Now that I know it's in there, I can't drive by without glancing over at it. Dr. Joanne Martin founded the museum with her late husband Elmer in 1988 with the mission of encouraging interest in African-American history using leaders as role models for youth and by revealing the little-known, often overlooked aspects of the history of slavery, most of which can be very hard to swallow. It begins with Long March to the Sea. We are looking at uh, Africans who have their villages have been raided. They have been stolen, taken on what was called the Long March to the Sea, as they were marched into the interior of Africa to slave forts that lined uh, the Atlantic. One of the things about the Long March to Sea is they were marched in uh, coffles, shackled together and so forth. When they would rest for the night, the young um, slaves who had been stolen were often put in barracoons or cages. And uh, it would be there that smelling the, the death that accompanied them because so many of them had been killed, had died along the way. And they were, you might be in a barracoon and shackled to someone who was dead just as um, was true of the, the slave ship. The slave ships were often given names like Liberty, John the Baptist, Holy Cross. Yeah, but charity and pride and justice and uh, people know Amistad, meaning friendship. On the night before the ships were loaded, religious leaders would gather on board to offer a blessing. Uh, bless the ship and the crew and the captain, not the dregs of uh, humanity being captured and enslaved. Then there's the often overlooked idea of ship captains sitting together in what can only be described as a seminar to discuss the most efficient way to organize enslaved people on a ship. It was this concept of tight packing and loose packing, arranging human beings like spoons in a drawer or books on a shelf. And you've seen that standard picture of, of the slave ship. What they were looking for was how can we maximize profits. And so the, the ones who adhered to the loose packing, it had to do with how you can keep them alive in the midst of all of these vermin. You had rats and all kind of vermin running around. So you got you need this balance. If you pack a thousand of them on the, the ship and 300 of them die, that's better than putting 300 on the ship and 300 of them die or putting 300 of them on the ship and, and 50 died. So it was about profit. Not all of the ships were built the same, but, but for the most part they were. 
and they separated out the men from the women and the boys. With the men, you're talking about human beings who would fight, and you want to have some sense of control. You want to have some sense of control over them, but also of the boys. If you think about who made up the crew, I mean, these were men who committed horrible and done horrible things in their lives and were put on these slave ships just to get rid of this criminal element, this violent element. That's who ended up uh, as crew on these slave ships. You didn't have, you know, some professor who said, I think I want an adventure, I'm going to get on a, a slave ship. They emptied their jails and put these men on slave ships. You've got people who have died. You're shackled to someone who has died. When the slave ship would come into harbor, the stench was so overwhelming that you could pull up into the Baltimore Harbor. And they said that they wouldn't allow the, the ships to come close. They'd have to stay out in the water, and then they'd send um, rowboats out. Listening to Dr. Joanne Martin, wrestling with the thought that while hundreds of men, women, and children were subject to these inhumane practices below deck, in the dark bellows of these ships. Somewhere on the starboard above, under the crisp night air, some of the most timeless hymns still sung in churches today were written by men who, for one reason or another, ignored the atrocities going on beneath their feet. The question kept running through my mind, where was the Catholic Church in all of this? That's in a minute on The Ark and the Dove. Before the break, Dr. Joanne Martin walked us through some of the atrocities of slavery at the Great Blacks and Wax Museum. What Jay and I struggle with is, where was the church in all of this? I asked Dr. Brown that question. What about the American church and American leadership? That's what we need to point to. The American bishops, they had slaves. They were the leaders in all of these communities. What about religious communities? They had slaves. Chief among them, the Jesuits, went so far as they continued to have slaves when everybody else stopped having slaves because it was an economic factor of slavery that you had slaves, uh, cheap abundant labor. They picked your crops, they ran your farms, they ran your households. They did all the things that you did not want to do. You didn't have to pay. You became rich off of the backs of these people. My friend, Father Michael Roach, who is a history professor at Mount St. Mary's and the unofficial archivist of the Archdiocese of Baltimore, offered me more on this subject. There's a great book called The Popes and Slavery. It's a doctoral dissertation of the Greg by a priest named Joel Kipenzer, I think, from Nebraska. Anyway, it talks about how chattel slavery was put up. Well, the original slavery was wartime slavery. Men who were prisoners of war became enslaved. Only later did chattel slavery come into play. And the popes very early on, we're talking the 1500s, are writing against this slavery in the Azores and Madeira and those places in the Atlantic where the Portuguese had taken over and enslaved large parts of the population. And then it becomes a broader question with the African slave trade. But there's consistent writing by the Holy Father. It's probably not enough, but there's consistent writing by the papacy against uh, enslavement. And I guess the, the last great one was in the 1830s, Gregory XVI writes, forbids the slave trade uh, amongst Christians, among all Catholics and adherents to the 
faith. Father Roach is talking specifically about Pope Gregory XVI's document. I'll save you the Latin title, but it explicitly condemned the slave trade and the institution of slavery. Dr. Brown explained how the American church leaders reacted to what Pope Gregory wrote. The leadership in the American church did not accept what came out of Rome. And I know that there was such a long period of what I would say argument in fighting amongst the leadership. Like once some of the American leadership realized, hey, this is a sin. This is a sin. And we have to stop it. Then others still even continue with it. And we know even today the issue, I want to say, stemming out of slavery, that a person of color isn't highly regarded as other people. Still, that's here today. I mean, we could just kind of look around and see leadership in the church, how many of them look like I do. Okay, leadership in our schools. Leadership anywhere. So even the um, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, how many of those men are men of color? Even. So, yeah, that, that is just a big story. But I do want to say that Pope Gregory sort of led the way in official, I mean, he issued an official document against slavery. When we look at the Catholic Church in Baltimore, it's really no better. It wasn't until 2019 that my boss, Archbishop Laurie of Baltimore, really confronted this reality from the perspective of the institutional church. Indeed, the first few bishops of Baltimore enslaved people. Archbishop Laurie wrote, quote, No credible treatment of the history of the establishment of the Catholic Church in the United States can be told without acknowledging the reality of the early church's direct involvement in slavery, unquote. I would like to think that we've repented as a church for this, but of course, that's still up for debate. In the year 2000, in an unprecedented move, Pope John Paul II apologized for the church's part in many injustices and sins. It was called a church-wide purification of memory. This wasn't the first time that he made public statements asking for forgiveness from Africans or Native Americans for how they were treated. He also did it in 1985 in Cameroon and in 1992 in the Dominican Republic. There's a lot of talk about reparations and other ways the church may seek forgiveness, but we'll talk about that in another episode. I want to get back to talking about black Catholicism in Baltimore. The first indication that we have of black Catholicism here is um, 1643, Matthias de Souza. He is the first black Catholic that we know for sure, the records here in Baltimore, that uh, we have a black Catholic. He came over on the Ark and the Dove. The Ark and the Dove is the title of this podcast. Those two ships brought the first Catholics to America, landing in Maryland, and staying on board until the Feast of the Annunciation on March 25th, now known as Maryland Day. The first Mass was celebrated that day in 1634 by Father Andrew White, and Matthias de Souza was one of the indentured servants on board. Eventually he gets his freedom, and we know we have archival evidence that he becomes a landowner and he's a voter. In the state of Maryland, you have to be a landowner to be a voter. And he becomes a prominent citizen. 
we have further evidence that Baltimore by 1793 is the nucleus of Black Catholicism in the colonial era. We have archival evidence that that is so. We are receiving Black Catholics here. Many of them are French-speaking, Spanish-speaking. And we have people of color who are worshiping at St. Mary's here on Packer Street. We have church records here. At the Basilica, there are records there. The Basilica she's talking about is the Basilica right across the street from my office. The Basilica of the Assumption, the first Catholic cathedral in the United States. 1843, there is very, very exciting. First records of black Catholics setting up a system of self-governance with the Society of Colored People. That's very, very exciting because it gives us uh, a peek into how black Catholics worshipped, how often they said the rosary, how often they did scripture study, how often they got together, they had a lending library. All of these sort of things went on there. Prior to that, we really didn't know how black Catholics were worshiping. But at 1843, with that Society of Colored People, it's just it's just fascinating information. As I began piecing the history together, I found countless cases of black Catholics throughout the history of the United States who have endured great challenges and persisted. Whether it was the story of Mother Mary Lang, who started an order of nuns and created the first Catholic school to educate black children, or more recently, the very personal story that Father Joseph Brown shared with me. Father Brown is a highly accomplished academic with numerous graduate degrees from Ivy League institutions and an expert on African-American history. But this is the part of the interview that really stuck with me. I'll tell you a story. That's what I'm good at. My mother and father in the 1930s had two children. I wasn't one of them, thank you very much. I'm not that old. But I, my older brother and sister, and both of my grandmothers, one Baptist, one African Methodist Episcopal, sat them down and had a nice, gentle talk with my parents and said, now that you have children, the two of y'all better start going back to church. We don't care what church you go to, but you better go to somebody's church because those kids need to have a church upbringing. And having known both my grandmothers, I don't doubt this part of the story at all, because after all, my parents are the ones who told me this. My father and she were down here in Southern Illinois, south of East St. Louis, and they decided that because there were some priests and nuns and other people in the Catholic Church who were doing good social work among the colored population, that they might try to be Catholic. Well, they went to start taking instructions, and the priest that they were working with told them after a certain set of experiences, I can't continue this because if I do continue and bring you into the Catholic Church, my parishioners will run me out of town. Well, here I am, all these years later. They said, okay, Father, and went back and became Catholic anyway, along with about seven or eight other black families in East St. Louis, who became the core of the St. Augustine Colored Mission in East St. Louis. They didn't take no for an answer. They didn't take get out of here for an answer. 
Now they imbued that in me. That's it, right there. Of all the interviews and conversations, this is the central question that never left me. Why did they stay? And Father Brown's story is one among countless others that we heard over the course of this project, which doesn't even scratch the surface of the stories that could be told. Imagine, for example, a neighborhood in West Baltimore where 10,000 people lived, and then 10 years later, 10,000 different people lived there. Emerson Village at one time in the 50s was all white. Yeah. No black. The neighborhood was rather evenly divided, Protestant Catholic. So you had one Roman Catholic parish, St. Bernardine's. When we started with the Kiss of Peace, we had white people that wouldn't even touch our hands like we were going to rub off on them or something. Yeah, we were in church. Morris Goldseeker is the one who has been really regulating the exodus of the black community out of the center of the city of Baltimore for the past 35 years. Morris Goldseeker. That was Goldseeker. Goldseeker. Bought up a lot of houses. We'd call him a slumlord, but he would call himself an equal opportunity housing provider. And he said, uh, you won't tell? I said, no. He said, what are you going to do when these move in here? And they get out on a porch in the summer and they drink beer. They, they took advantage of people and it worked. Doesn't make it right, but it worked. I mean, that's what happened. But that's next week on The Ark and the Dove. The Ark and the Dove was written and produced by Edward Herrera and Jay Lampart with help from Louis Damani Jones. Editing and creative direction by Sarah Perla. Theme, outro music, and sound design by Jay Lampart. Additional music by Dietrich Goodwin and Jay Lampart. Artwork by Tom Grillo. Special thanks to Siobhan Hagen and Marmia, the Mid-Atlantic Regional Moving Image Archive. Really, the work they do is amazing. To learn more, go to marmia.org. That's M-A-R-M-I-A dot Thank you to Dr. Joanne Martin of the Great Blacks in Wax Museum, K. Albert Little of the Cordial Catholic Podcast for allowing the use of his audio, and the OSV Institute for Catholic Innovation and Notre Dame Idea Center for their early support. Most importantly, thanks to the countless folks willing to share their story for the making of this podcast. The Ark and the Dove is a production of Balthazar Media. For more information, please visit balthazarmedia.com.